You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to this week's episode of Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Herd is hosted by me, Joe Hakeem, and I'm joined by Nick Britsky of Nick Drinks, Jason Leinert of the Detroit Optimist Society, and Vato of the Hungry Dudes. We are joined each episode by workers, leaders, and analysts of the hospitality industry. Please take a moment to subscribe to Herd on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or however you listen to your podcast. If you like or dislike what you hear, write a review. We love hearing from our listeners. You can visit Herd at HerdPodcast.com, follow Herd on Twitter and Instagram at HerdPodcast, and like Herd Podcast on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and now here's this week's episode of Herd. Hello, friends, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. I Jason. just want to keep singing like our song, like our theme song. I like <laughs> it's catchy. It is. It's yeah, awesome. It's, it's it's a great song. Um, I, I wish I could give a shout out to who 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 made it. Jason, do you know? It, That's a great question. Um, off the top of my head, I do not know. We will we will, we will give a shout out next week to the to the creator of our our theme song. So we have a very special guest uh, joining us from uh, – she's the owner and baker at Hip Hop Bake Shop, Adela Bayo. Thanks for being with us. Hi, guys. Thank hey. you. Hey. So – Oh, wow. Look at the enthusiasm. Okay. I, well, I mean, <laughs> I'm multitasking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Whoa. Oh, little, little, there we go. A little bit of <laughs> applause. Um, okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to make a, uh, a uh, confession here. So I, I had an ulterior motive to bring Adela on because tomorrow's my birthday. What? And, and I, um, I'm not a cake guy. I, I, I love pie. So, um, I saw this pie that you brought with you. Now, now this pie is called Big Pimpin'. It's the Big Pimpin'. Um, There's a lot going on in that pie. Yeah, t- tell me about the pie because I was so. Um, the pie I just got on the menu last week, and it's a banana cream pie uh-huh. with a peanut butter mousse, yep. halal bacon, and shaped chocolate on top. It's a lot of goodness going on, so that's why. I get to call it the big pimpin. Yeah, I I was pretty blown away. I by hope the you photo. enjoy it. Yeah, I, I'm I'm excited about it. And then we have two kinds of cognac in the house. Um, and we were we were doing some a little bit of research before we uh, hit the air about cognac. So Vato, um, yeah. l- let's talk about uh, cognac but, abbreviations. Yeah, I was uh, I wasn't aware. I've always seen it. Never knew really what it was. You know, never really asked anybody what VSOP or you know or XO meant. So learned that VSOP is very superior old pale, and that's going to come from uh, a a uh, cognac that's been aged for at least four years. Then you have XO. Uh, I guess because they don't want to say EO, uh, EXO stands for extra old. Okay. Uh, which is weird. You know, I, I mean, I guess it's not that weird, but whatever. Uh, and that's going to be aged for at least six years. And then, uh, cognacs that are Napoleon or old reserve are also equivalent to an EXO cognac. Okay. So that's a little bit of that, so, that so lingo. Let, let's start, Jason. What is cognac exactly? Cognac is a distilled spirit that's <clears throat> made from grapes. Okay. Uh, so it's essentially brandy. Um, similar to there's brandies made all over the world. Uh, in Italy, people can make grappa or in America, pear brandies, peach brandies, different types of brandies. But cognac is a great brandy that's made in a, a 
by defined legal um, <clears throat> geographic location in Cognac, France. So um, there's similar, you know, Armagnac is uh, essentially the same, but made in a different region close to Cognac, but differently. And so you find brandies really made all over the world, but this is specific to the region, uh, which has to do a lot with the terroir of the the soil that the grapes are grown in and the climate and the um, and the long history and tradition of the, you know, the knowledge that goes into making it. So, you know, the Hennessy, which we're drinking some Hennessy VSOP, I know that the, the Hennessy family and, and uh, the master blenders, uh, they're on their, I believe, the eighth generation. Uh, the master blenders are on their eighth generation, the Falou family. So eight of them in a row have been the master blenders for the Hennessy family passing down. So that's pretty amazing um, to have a relationship like that. And they keep all the, you know, they've got these sellers and the guy, the blender, it's amazing story. He, you know, has the same routine every single day. He eats the same thing, gets up, like his palate has to be calibrated exactly every day. They do the tastings. So sounds kind of boring in a way. I want to work get for to, them. Uh, <laughs> I want to move and work <clears throat> for the family. It's quite an art because they blend, uh, you know, we were talking before the show, a lot of the older cognacs, uh, even much older than the ones that were designated by those, uh, by the VSOP Nexo. But I remember at Sugar House, we had somebody come in and bring the, I believe it was the Parody Imperial, and it was some ridiculous idea or some ridiculous blend of Eau de Vey, which is like the, the juice that they still of um, like 60 to 100 or 70 to 130 years old. Wow. That are in their cellars that they blend together to create these. And then these bottles are like $4,000 uh, wow. bottles, you know. But yeah, the idea that what you're drinking was put in a barrel, you know, could a blend of things up to 130 years ago. It's incredible. It's pretty incredible. So there is a bottle um, that, that historically that is, is – it's like a crystal. But is it Louis the Louis the Thirteenth? Louis the Thirteenth. Is that a cognac? That is a cognac. Okay, that's Remy Martin. So those. I mean, most people are familiar with Hennessy and Remy Martin are like the two major cognac houses that Americans recognize. But there's a. I mean, there's a. And we don't even get access to as many. Pierre Ferrand is kind of coming on the scene. We've got a bottle of Hein rare VSOP here as well. Um, those are good. But I mean, yeah, there's a there's a bunch of. Brands. But it can only come from that one region in France. Mm-hmm. Yep, okay. by law. That's I got uh, two more uh, things that I forgot. VS is a, a very special, and that is a two-year. Um, it's got to be uh, age for at least two years. Three stars or luxury uh, goes along with the VS uh, label, and then all of these labels started in 1983. Oh, really? Yeah. And it says uh, 1983. Uh, there was a request. Uh, the French government drafted regulations governing the terms used to describe the cognac's quality. Interesting. And this is coming from uh, the Martel website. Ooh, Martel's another one. I forgot about that. Martel's doing a great job too. Blue Swift is one of their newer products, but Martel's and Quavassier. I'm slacking. I'm not playing that game. <laughs> Paso Quavassier. How could I forget about I that? I just tried Martel the other day. It's actually very smooth. It's kind of the same as the VSOP. Pastic Cavassia, that's a hip hop, right? Yeah. It is. Yeah. I feel like we got to every time, I feel like we're just going to start singing. And... Just don't, <laughs> if I can't remember a name or a title, don't put me on the spot, please. But sometimes I know the whole song or verse, and I don't know, I can't remember the name of the artist. Is that where the inspiration from the pies comes from ultimately, though? I mean, 
first of all, they come from Dr. Dre because mm. he was my first love. But um, yeah, it's part of the the whole hip hop. It is, has the music has inspired me before I even started cooking, and um, my love for both of them has been equally the same. And I just want to incorporate that into my food, such as the names. Or even when I listen to the music, something just clicks and I'll make some, you know, a pie or dessert that somebody's either rapping about it or they're talking about it. Or the name makes sense, like Terami Wu. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of Wu and birthdays, let's talk about Joe oh, yeah. Akeem. And- <laughs> And Rick, the, Rick Flair? Oh, my God. Well, but that was bad. I mean, that's an old photo, of course. But yeah, I, so oh, Rick Flair's birthday was yesterday, February 25th. Um, I met him back in April uh, at an event in Fraser, Michigan. Um, and it was as amazing as you could possibly uh, imagine. Um, that I, I met a lot of wrestlers that day. I met Rick Flair. I met Sting. I met Mick Foley, Ricky the Dragon, Steamboat, wow. Million Dollar Man, Billy Gunn. Uh, Road Warrior, Animal, The Nasty Boys, Jimmy Hart. Um, so probably the the uh, the cost of the VIP ticket, whatever. I don't recall what it was exactly. It was Prices. well worth it. Did they have? I mean, it, just meeting Ric Flair was worth it. Is it like Comic Con type stuff? Where I was looking at the Motor City Comic Con coming up, that to take pictures with uh, some of the celebrities is like seventy dollars, and then you can take pictures with. Uh, whoever they have from the cast of Walking Dead, and that's like $200. Is that the same thing for these wrestling things? So th- this event was called Legends of Wrestling, and you paid one price to meet everybody. So huh. there wasn't the kind of ni- – I-, I call it nickel and diming because it- it's you can you can really fall into a deep um, hole, financial hole, if you try to meet everybody oh, you want to. That could be a great these- tag team name, right? Financial hole? No, nickel and diamond. <laughs> nickel and diamond. Gonna, and that's that's the uh, that's the finishing move is the financial hole. Yeah. Nickel and diamond. Puts you in the so I, I went I to know. another event in Chicago uh, in May called All In. That um, there was a, a conference or convention beforehand called Starcast that was um, wrestling related, and that was one where you had to pay individual wrestlers to to meet them. And if you paid for everybody, for example, you would have been in the thousands of dollars. Wow. Yeah, um, and that's not even including the cost of admission and all of that. It, um, I, I paid to meet two guys, and it was it put me back almost two hundred bucks. Wow. I wonder how did they swing that for the the legends thing that you do. That <sighs> I mean, that's seems like they left a lot of money on the table. Maybe um, they they just sold a bunch of VIP tickets, mm. so there was at least a hundred to two hundred of us that that did the VIP. So they get all your money up front that way, mm-hmm. um, rather than having to. Because these guys at these uh, conventions, they pay for tables essentially. So, um, just like the movie The Wrestler. Yeah, yeah, but not as sad. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there are play. There are there were moments where I thought of that movie at at All In, not not at the Legends of Wrestling, but at All In, I was very. There were certain guys that were just that sat there and like nobody came out there. No, like no. Virgil was he? Oh, was, <laughs> Virgil wasn't there. Oh. but he he's like the main. Uh, the main kind of example. Yeah. If you look up Virgil on real Virgil on Instagram, uh, you'll see some photos of him just sitting there doing shit yeah. at, at a convention. I saw a website once that was just documenting all the conventions that he was at that nobody went to his booth or whatever. Yeah, he he likes he, his best uh, best moments are when he's with Ted DiBiase, um, and that's when he gets the most people coming up to him because Ted's the draw. N- no offense, Virgil, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> so you you mentioned Joe. You mentioned that you were in Chicago. We have some Chicago history in this room, right? 
Yes, we do. <laughs> Tell us about I it. I love Chicago. Well, so let's let's start. So me. let's lead into Chicago. Let's start with. You came from Albania. Oh yeah, yeah. Yes. Let's talk about so Albania first. I'm originally born and raised there. Uh-huh. Um, I came in the states when I was 12 years old. Okay. Didn't know hi or bye, nothing. Came here with my family. Um, that was it back in 2000. Uh-huh. That's when I started listening to Dr. Dre. So was there any interest? <laughs> was... So when you were in Albania, was there interest like a interest in food that started there? Yeah, I mean, it is a uh, it's in our culture. Mm-hmm. It's a household. My mom was a stay-at-home mom growing up, and um, I watched her cook, and she didn't necessarily bake any pies, but she always made desserts and just a homebody. So I got to learn how to make a lot of just the small traditionals, how to make Turkish coffee at a young age. Um, so there's always the love for food and sharing it with family and friends and all all my family is still back there, such aunts and uncles. So it was always around us. Have you been back to visit? I've been back once and then you just get so caught up in uh, the lifestyle here that you forget to go back <laughs> or you'll just end up booking a trip to the Caribbean because it's closer than <laughs> flying across sea. Huh. So you got you came here when you're 12 and you so you started listening to hip. Did you learn English yeah. from hip hop? I actually did slowly. Um, we used to, um, one of my, uh, my best friend's brother used to drive us to middle school every day. And, um, that's when the 2001 album had come out, maybe a couple months before that. So that's how I got hooked into Dr. Dre. And slowly everybody came after that. But, um, I learned a lot of, yeah, a lot of the, oh, I've had enough of that. <laughs> Do not bring that around me. But yeah, through music a lot. And um, I have an older sister, even back home. She did play a lot of Lauryn Hill, Tupac, um, a lot of different artists. So it's been in my, it's been around me. I just didn't know what they actually meant until I got older and knew some of the words. What the words meant? Yeah. (laughs) I knew I would. Such bad words in hip hop. (laughs) But. It wasn't just that. I think what attracted me most was the storytelling and there's so much truth and reality in all these. I mean, we're talking about the good hip hop, the old school hip hop, not the what's playing on the radio right now. But that sounds like a different podcast show. (laughs) um, That's just and I do listen to that. Don't get me wrong. So I swap back and forth. But it's just such a storytelling and it's so honest and it kind of relates to. A lot of people like it related to me and I'm not even from here. So that's why I don't music connects a lot of people just like food does. And you don't have to speak the same language or be from the same city or country. It just gets people together. And that's the whole idea of hip hop bake shop. When I do have a brick and mortar is to bring everybody under one umbrella and different artists and have a bakery inside of that little community space and everybody can just enjoy. I mean, these are the two most important things in my life right now. And I want to be able to intertwine those two. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's important to to mention that you you don't have a brick and mortar currently. I do not. Um, So we uh, interviewed Cliff Skywalker. You You got a building for me? (laughs) <laughs> I I'm don't not, <laughs> So we interviewed Cliff Skywalker a couple weeks ago from Thrillist, an Insta chef, and the vast majority of your advertising seems to come from Instagram, right? 
Yes, um, Instagram, and I've done a few pop-ups. Okay. That's kind of got the word out last summer. But uh, yeah, mostly just build up that relationship with people through uh, when I've done different events through the community, friends and family that have been a huge help. And uh, just through social media, which has been a blessing in itself. So kind of explain how your business works then you you, um you have your website so people can order from hiphopbakeshop.com um i currently just do orders for pickup or delivery friday saturday sunday or sometimes saturday sunday monday but weekends mostly um i I do take in you know like you have a birthday midweek somebody can always hit me uh, in an email or they can go to my page and ask um don't turn anybody down but that's when I have the most time to really focus on the bake shop and to get all the product out you, on the weekend. You have a full-time job. Yeah, multiple <laughs> jobs. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, nobody uh, said, it all sounds good in your head when you go, you know, you want to be an entrepreneur and you want to have a business and you want to do what you love. And nobody tells you that it's costing, time cons- like everything in one, but yeah. Um, I have two other jobs to support this, but the main will be to get rid of those other two jobs and focus on hip hop big shop and do this full time. Yes. So y- you were working full time as a pastry chef. Yep. So I've been in the restaurant industry for a few years. Um, when I switched careers originally in 2015, I moved to Chicago and that's where when I moved there, I really didn't know. Anything. It was just from a home cook to a a whole different ball game. But that's where I learned how to make pie dough and bake pies and crimp a pie and make desserts. So I was in that scene for about a year. I moved back and I started working at Grey Ghost. I was their pastry chef. So I was still in that, you know, in that scene. Um, the restaurant life was it's really, I mean, you know, it is... It's probably worse than being an entrepreneur. <laughs> it's exhausting. <laughs> there. Long it's, hours. And that's what kind of took a toll on me after a couple of years. And I know people and it was just nonstop. And then when I realized what I actually wanted to do uh, was wanted to have my own little side thing. So that's when I left Gregos and started pursuing the business. So you said you went from home cook to... Um, to like a pastry chef in Chicago. How did you get yeah. that? How did you convince someone to take a chance on you in Chicago? When I moved to Chicago, I didn't know anybody and I moved by myself. I didn't, I switched I've a whole new city, a whole new career, a whole new neighborhood, everything. And I was alone, no friends or family. I just, uh, through online, I went to a restaurant and I asked if they were hiring they said anything specific. I said anywhere. I wasn't trying to be a pastry chef. I just wanted to cook. I I said, put me next to the dishwasher. I don't care. I just want to learn. And um, they probably saw me. They're like, you can't handle the heat. But what? I wish I kind of would have tried <laughs> to be. But I wasn't planning on this is what I'm going to do. I just wanted to go and give it a try and see where I could fit in and what I liked. They had an opening as a pastry assistant. And uh, what I thought I knew at home, everything just went blank. I just realized when you're in a restaurant, I don't know how to do anything. This is a completely different ball game. So there was an older gentleman there, which he was amazing. He had so much patience with me. 
And uh, what, what, he was an older? immigrant too, so he was like kind of looking at me like his daughter, and, and he knew I didn't have any family here. He's like, "What are you doing?" But he stayed with me extra long hours. He taught me how to make a few things. It was so I kind of got my feet wet. And then after a few months at that restaurant, I went to um, Table Fifty Two, which right now it's Blue Door uh, Kitchen and Garden, and at Table Fifty Two, which is owned by Chef Art Smith. The pastry chef there, and she's the one that took me under her wing. And I, the only thing I said, I don't know what I'm doing, but my willingness to work and learn, I will be here day in and day out. And I literally was there day in and day out with no sleep. And they saw that and they kind of took me, you know, we're going to teach her. After a year there, I said, yeah, I'm going home. This is... Yeah. <laughs> just want to backtrack one second. You said older. I just want to make sure you're talking about like somebody who was like 60 <laughs> or 70 years old. <laughs> the first... Yeah, the first guy was probably my dad's age, but... Um, I'm just... I, I'm just I, it's in v- the has, he Vato was has older. age issue, Age issues. Well, he, you have a birthday. He's the old dude in the room. I am the old dude in the room. So Art Smith is Oprah chef, correct? Uh, yeah, he used to be... Or chef. used to be? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um... So that's a pretty great connection to to fall into. Yeah, I um the I've never I don't say I've never the group of talented chefs I haven't seen that in the other kitchens that I worked at just from there, and that's how I got connected with a uh, the guys at Great Goes because they used to work there when they were younger, so they knew the, exactly the type of um, discipline I came from, the type of work ethic I came from because there were and plus. The Chicago scene is so much different than here. Restaurant-wise, it's so hard to find good cooks or reliable cooks here. There, it was just maybe it was either the places that I worked, but everybody was very committed, disciplined. They did not mess around. And here, when I came back, and I used to tell Chef John and Joe, at, this at is at Gregos, yeah, and he's like, yeah, this is not like Chicago. It's different over there. Here, nobody has that accountability or respect the chef, and they're like, oh, it's fine, you because I was raised in that kitchen. We call you chef. We call you. It's just so much respect for the chef. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, the guys at Gregos were pretty laid back, but they're like, oh, it's fine. It just the culture was different here in the restaurant scene than it was in Chicago. Do you think that's because we have a uh, a young scene here, um, that our scene is kind of, Chicago is pretty mature in terms of the restaurant scene there. They, they have their, they've done their Michelin thing. They've done their James mm-hmm. Beard stuff. Here we have kind of a younger scene. And it's smaller. It's smaller. a smaller city. Population density is less. There, there's a, there's a smaller, you know, a smaller pool of employable um people just from and i've been saying for making any statement about skill just the amount of people living in the city chicago is a, a, a vastly bigger city oh, than detroit yeah multiples right what's that multiples yeah oh yeah <clears throat> um and th- there's there's a number of issues that fall into that um I mean, was it surprising? To you? Were you the only pastry chef at Grey Ghost? Yes, I was. Uh, what was surprising at Grey Ghost, just in the culture of the kitchen, was the work ethic. And in Chicago, there wasn't no, I come in at 11 and I leave when the, it's when things are done. Even if it's, the work ethic was not there. And um, in Chicago? Uh, here. Mm. 
So when I used to talk to Chef John and Joe, it was, and they knew that because they came from very super talented chefs. I mean, the kitchens that they worked at in Chicago, it went, they wouldn't fly. It would not fly back in the kitchens here. And I can't speak for much because I haven't worked in other restaurants here. So I don't, I'm not, you know, but just from the environment that I've seen, just the work ethic wasn't there. What, what did that add to the stress level for you to, to be the, the sole pastry chef and then have this kind of, did, did most of that work fall on your shoulders then? Uh, just pastries, but I did, um, I did help out a lot with prepping and everything in between. It's just also in my nature to not stop. I mean, I, we're foreigners. Foreigners just work. We don't know when to relax or stop. There's no, once you get in, and it was in my, like, I can't leave until this is over. Or even when everything was over, I'd go, what do you need? What do you need? It's just my nature. Even if it's not in the kitchen, I cannot leave till everybody is so I probably put a lot more pressure on myself yeah. than what is expected of me. But I just assumed that everybody would be the same, especially if we're doing the So, so I want to do a little side note here because we're eating the pie. Yeah. How was the pie, I by already, the way? And, and I already ate the pie. <laughs> oh, Vato ate his slice already. I'm like slowly savoring. This is, this is incredible. Um, I, I'm really – Impressed with the crust. Like, yes. All of it's delicious, but the crust is almost like a sugar cookie. It's a shortbread. And that's okay. um, the the chef in Chicago. She's the one that taught me how to make the shortbread. So I make the shortbread crust on some pies, like mostly the custard pies. I think it goes well. And then the all butter crust I make with fruit pies. So I kind of like, even for this, I wanted to get your... Uh, feedback on do you, do you think it'd be better on a shortbread crust? Because it kind of it's still sweet. The shortbread is oh, sweet. Th- this is and everything else is sweet. Maybe it needs to be on an all uh, butter crust. No, right? I, I think this is great. I I don't um I, I like but, the the bite that the shortbread gives. Oh, absolutely. Um, the the kind of um I, I don't even know what to call it. Like there's like the almost like a additional chew that goes into it and the bacon. I mean, it's just a on a cookie crust. You know, it's yeah. I. Good. I'm glad it's being eaten because I've had <laughs> way more than my share. No, it's one of those things where I saw the picture and I'm like, that has to be incredible. And and you just hope that it's half as good as the picture looks. And this is better than the picture looks, which I wasn't yeah. expecting. Um, and again, I, I um, you know, it, it's I'm not a it's um, still a trial and error type of uh, as I go every day is something new. Yeah. So th- that's another question I have. So the, these. You know, I, I offered you a slice and I've had enough of that. So when you are developing a recipe, how how many kind of iterations do you go through to, to develop a recipe? Like how many times do you how many times do you I, remake I, it? I have to make I have to make it a few times because depending on like you said, the palate, when somebody's have you need to have that palate. For example, I'll make a pie, I'll have to taste it the next day, or I have to see how long and then I usually give it to my sister. She has a really good palate. She doesn't cook or bake or anything. I have to, if somebody says if it's too sweet, if it's too this, so I do spread it around and see what people like and then get the feedback. So, but I'm still in those learning stages because right now I'm not being trained by anybody. It's whatever I've learned in the last three years or four years, kind of figuring out as I go. And um, yeah, some, I but I always wait till the next day to taste everything i'll taste it as i go to make sure the custard is fine and everything but to actually enjoy a piece of pie or a cookie it tastes a lot better the next day so then um 
once you develop a recipe and you're in, at what point are you like, okay, I'm going to market with this. I'm going to go sell this. Oh, I just, if I like it, after I make it a few times, I'm like, this is good. I get to a couple people. I'm like, this is, you know, and then I'll, I'll market or I'll do it a pop-up and then I'll see what people like. Like that, uh, I have a salted caramel cheesecake on the menu and that. it's probably the first thing I've ever made and it's changed so many times over the years. And right now it's a staple. Everybody keeps coming back for the salted caramel. So I know that's solid. At least out of 10 items, I know I got one solid. <laughs> but with even with this, um, that's why those pop-ups have been so nice because I've put two, three pies out and then I'll see what people think. And I love, you know, good or bad feedback because I don't want to slave over here if it's not good. And I need to know. But I try to give it to People like how we know their chefs, you know, their home cooks. They can tell me if it needs a little bit of salt or a little bit of that. Um, so, yeah, I just trial and error and kind of go with it. What are some of your busiest times? Thanksgiving is insane. Oh, my God. I mean, it's great, but it's definitely it's insane. Right now, it's been pretty slow. Um, summertime, because people want to throw parties. And I do cater. Um and not just necessarily pies, but just small desserts. So, so I've got a, I got a salted caramel cheesecake from Adela you, on, on during you Thanksgiving. The, you had the apple pie. A car, sal, the salted pie. caramel apple pie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I kind of How combined two. It was fantastic. Did but it I, go well with the salt on top? Oh, yeah. Okay. It was awesome. But, um, I think. I think I picked it up from you on Thanksgiving and you. Oh, I was done by that day. <laughs> he saw me. I was like, oh. I can't. I'm like you're probably like my last you, order. You haven't you hadn't slept or like yeah. It was like how, how so how do you schedule out like how, how how many orders do you take first of all? How do you know when a sellout hits? Well, so last year was my first time doing it, and it's just me. Uh, for, oh, and I should uh, say this is a cottage kind of a cottage law business. You cook out of your home. Yep. Yeah. And so when just want to let people know it's literally just me from beginning to end so it gets very uh tiring or frustrating and i think what gets more frustrating is working out of one oven so you can only do two at a time and it takes about three hours and so you have to constantly i have to like sleep on the timer uh which i'm used to it's fine it totally works but i last year um i did about 47 orders and that was a lot just mentally not the physical part just mentally because you're stressing out trying to make sure it sets and it finishes on time in the packaging um this year i didn't do as many so i kind of like learn how to i have to almost put myself i've put myself on a schedule with the times and buying prepping ahead and making sure everything is done ahead of time so when it comes down with the orders, I can just bake them off the day before. Not just that. You got to put them up somewhere, too. You're to bake them yeah, off. Yeah, so last year, uh, it was my first time. So we have a pretty big garage, and God bless my parents, because if it wasn't for them, they'd probably like, hate me, but then I make them a pie, so everything's great. Uh, they were stacked in the garage, and thank God it was wintertime, so they can, because I didn't have any fridge. Uh, room in the fridge so they would be stacked on top of the cars in boxes everything just laid out flat uh this <laughs> year i went and bought a speed rack i bought like 10 sheet trays i had the cover zipper it was 
amazing. And I had all the orders um, by day, everything at this P-Rec just made life so much easier. I told my parents, you can get out of the garage because they couldn't open the garage. I'm like, you can't move the car right now because I have boxes on top of. But <laughs> They're like, yeah, like the car is like shelf for you. <laughs> There's somewhere to put yeah, it. <laughs> it's, so every, you know, every few is, months. Is everything the same it. size? All the pies the same size uh, that you're yes. doing? Yep. They're all nine inch pies and so is the cheesecake. So, so then – in terms of scaling, right? So you've obviously thought about a brick and mortar. Someone comes to you tomorrow, you know, and says, I, "I'm ready to invest in you." Do you have the, the plans to like scale up and say, "I'm ready to do this," or or is that something you need to ease yourself into? No, but I can. I've seen what I have, um, what I've done before in the past, working at restaurants and the capacity that we've dealt with, and having to things to go out at a certain time. I can certainly do that on my own. I don't I know what the stress the stress that comes with it and I don't want to be in that situation, but I definitely need to have a plan out if if I were to be in those shoes to even hire even to have a commercial kitchen and have somebody come and help me. And what I've learned it takes a lot of um trust to hire somebody or to have somebody help you to put in the same effort and work that you put in. Because obviously all the pies stays the same because I make them. If I were to bring somebody in, it'd be really hard to, then I'd just come to you for advice. Cause <laughs> but, but you're not winging it though. I mean, these are all, once you establish a recipe, you, you're no, set you're, to your ingredients, right? Nope. It, they're definitely not. Yeah, everything is set. It's still, it's very different from one person to another. I mean, I can give him the pie dough and to crimp the pie or to have it. It. I'm trying, this is why being by myself right now, I'm trying to test these recipes over and over again, even the ones that I've made last year, two years ago, because I want to make sure that it can go in anybody's hand and come out the same. And that, that's Incredibly right. difficult. Even the recipes we have at Ackroyd's that, sure. are, that are 50, 60, 70 years old. It's hard. Um, the the re- reproduction. And, and I mean, essentially what you're selling um, is, especially when you go to a commercial kitchen or have a brick and mortar, you're selling consistency. I mean, restaurants do it to a certain extent, too, to a, a wide extent. I mean, this is all that we do is sell con- consistent, great food, right? Right. Whether it's a bakery, whether it's a restaurant, whether – I mean, if if this pie – this pie is beautiful um, – if it's made differently than what you want it to, what you want it to look like, you can't sell it, and then all the ingredients are wasted, mm-hmm. and that goes into the cost, right? So, like, or they do, and that's what separates the ones that have success over the long term and the one people that do not, right? They do sell it, and then you know you can't grow that way. No, and I want to give a quick shout out. So, um, the the. Today and tomorrow, we're uh, at Ackroyd's. We're doing a training with Zingerman's. Um, we're doing an awesome. open book um, management training. And um, one of the things you learn from Zingerman's is that all of this stuff is, is scalable. They're, they're, they're a huge, they're, they're a huge community of businesses now, right? And we're you know Ackroyd's. We're thirteen people. Um, Adela, you're one person. But eventually, you could be fifty. There could be. 50 Adela's running around, you, you hope, right? Mm-hmm. And, and like all of this great. stuff. Yeah, all of this stuff is scalable. Catch, catch us some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, these kind of every, but every bit of it 
has a cost involved, right? So yeah. like what what goes when you started doing this, like how did you come up with a price structure? First of all, when I started doing this, I didn't think all <laughs> what what I'm thinking right now being, you know, a year in. Uh-huh. Um so with the help with a few friends, I went back to some notes I've had from working at a restaurant of how much things co- how to do the plate cost. Uh, I'm still figuring that out. Um, like I said, right now, it, this is not making any money. It's just to put the name out there. I'm not doing this for money. It's just I enjoy doing it, and I want people to eat good food and put the name out. Cause it's been hard because you don't know what to – I had to text a friend of mine. I'm like, do you – do what about seasonings? What do you – this, you uh-huh. know, just the smaller things because I don't have that business mindset. I just know how to cook and work, and I can do that. But that business side of it—that's what's been a bit of a struggle. When, when you worked at um, when you worked at Grey Ghost, was costing out a dessert part of what you were doing? No, that was in Chicago. They okay. kind of taught me a little bit of plate costing and kind of dividing, you know, in ounces and by the recipe and do the final. Cost. So I learned a little bit about play costing in Chicago. What happened at Grey Ghost? I wasn't a part of that. You know, they, they're the ones that did that. So I was just focusing on what to make but for how, the menu. But how, so you would say, I'm creating this. So, example that we, right, that we talked would, about. So, and s'mores I don't donut. Know, yeah. So, the s'mores donut, right? Like, how did you, you presented the donut? Right. And, and they would, they would price it out? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I had nothing to do with the pricing at, um, so you say, well, here's the ingredients I use. Here's how much time it took me to make it. And yeah, then- and I don't, and I'm sure every place is different. I don't know how they, which I'd probably have to reach out to a few people that I know to figure out what the cost is. But I, I wasn't in charge of that, so I don't know how much they would cost. And I don't know if they took in my labor and the lights were on and all that. Uh, well, I, I would imagine the, that they did, the but. I just, but they've again they have so many years of experience so they know what they're doing. But I think it's fascinating that you you were the fundamental creator of these items but you had not very little nothing to do with the, the price of the, what you were yeah. creating. I think that's it. Did, did you ever ask Is that I don't know is that common or I, not? I, I don't know enough about like when we cost out items like we're pretty focused on you know the main thing is making a profit or, or, or like selling it for uh, to, to it's got to be worth our while right yeah and so if you were creating something that um no one else could do um it, it wouldn't really be worth our while but you know for, for just speaking from accurate perspective do you think it's different like in a restaurant setting than in a bakery setting where you're only going to have that item for a couple of weeks or a month i, I mean they still have to make still, money on everything yeah um I mean, at least I think, you know, from a big, from our perspective, we will have specials, um, which I imagine for, say, a dessert runs for a month or two weeks. It's essentially a special. Um, You still have to make money on it. You can't just sell stuff out the door and, like, not make any money. Right. I mean, I would would imagine they'd have to know what the cost of the items were and factor in labor. And some of the other stuff, it's going to go with economies of scale and you're not going to really you know, need to worry too much about maybe the electricity and things like that because that's going to get factored in some of the other right. fire ticket items. But uh, you would, you know, something if like you're going to use some kind of special K2 
caviar to go on to a pastry or something like that. I mean, that had to be costed out. Or you did you have to ask for permission to before no, the ingredients? Were, no, I would just um, that helped me out a lot. That would help me out a lot in um, trying to create a dessert. Um, like I said, because I was still new, but I was never restricted in what I should or shouldn't make. I think that, I mean that's so great they, creativity there. Yeah, to be able to not you know not say hey. Can I do that? I mean, when I was at school, so I went to Schoolcraft for a year, you know, and we had, we were making some stuff, uh, for breakfast. I remember this. I was making a quiche and, you know, we had to ask for special permission if we wanted to do something that was like lobster or yeah, I something. I never ran into that, especially with money plate costing. Uh, just in Chicago, when I was given more responsibilities, they said, well, now this can become part of, you know, one of your responsibilities to come up with just the dessert menu, how much it costs because it would help them out. So that's where I learned how to do the multiply and divide and what goes in. I had no idea what how they even price it out. That's why it's really hard for me right now. I'm like, how do you price this out? Especially because I'm making it in only two or three orders rather than 20 orders to see a profit. Right, yeah, because there, there's an economy of scale, too. As you create more of something at the same time, it cuts down your time, right. hopefully, and you're able to buy ingredients in bulk, which is another cost savings. There's a mul- multitude of cost savings that you can do uh, as you scale up. Um, as long as each item isn't unique. Right, yeah. yeah. But if she's making you know uh, 50 yeah. of these pies here, she can scale it up so much where right. th- there's you know a savings I just, there. Um, I left GFS last night because I had to buy some heavy whipping cream. It was up a dollar, mm-hmm. and that's what I noticed. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, somebody else said this. She's like, what do you use this for? I'm like, well, I bake, so this is really important for me that it's five ninety nine a quart. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and that and that goes it. into your cost. Mm-hmm. Right, it, it falls right in. If you're using expensive ingredients, you have to charge. I mean, and you have to make money. You can't just do this a, as a volunteer type of thing, yeah. especially if you're trying to scale up and and open up a brick. Yeah, and that's mortar. probably one of my challenges right now is the cost. Yeah, I forgot where I was, and but there not... was, there was a place that said that uh, because of the price of avocados, uh, anything that you ordered with avocados was going to be a dollar more than it was listed on the menu. Yeah. And it's because they had to. And I think unless you're in that, like how we know food or we're buying for you, you're like, yes, I would pay. And I know what's going on. Somebody that doesn't is not in the food industry or cook at home or it doesn't take into effect. They they're like, what? You know, this is for me that I I, I know what how much cost it goes into your cookies and your pastries and it is six or seven dollars. I understand because yep. I know how much it costs. But somebody that doesn't have, you know, for example, like my sister doesn't cook or bake. Like she would have no idea. It's like why does this cost four dollars? You know. So it is. People get a little. Well, to your point though, like you went in and the heavy whipping cream was a dollar more. I mean, there's no explanation of why it's a dollar more today than it was yesterday. I mean, that's a significant price jump. Yep. To go a dollar. I mean, some you know. It, you know, and there's no sign saying, oh, because, uh, you know, the dairy cows are put out during the polar vortex, you know, we couldn't Maybe, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I, that was probably it. You know, but I mean, there's no explanation there. So you don't know if, uh, you know, GFS is just increasing the price because they have employee issues or something, right? I mean, we don't know if it's directly attached to that product yeah. or if it's attached to other things, right? 
a new appreciation for food. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Everywhere I go, restaurants, I really value everything that's put on. And I make sure the company that I'm with, I let them know the, how much work goes into and those chefs back there and those dishwashers and everybody that has to do with this. It's worth every penny. Yep. Yeah. And a lot of people are underpaid. I mean, it's, it's a it's a tough industry to make it in. Um, the, the culinary, yeah. you know, I mean, restaurant you, you, industry, baking, anything. You can even throw it in a, uh, over to Jason in the bar area, like anywhere that uses fresh fruit. Yep. You know? The difference between that and just buying a, uh, you know, carton of Minimade, right? Yeah, those drinks are, I mean, the bartenders certainly have a responsibility to cost their drinks out when we put out a menu and understand that because you're right. I mean, you got to make money, right? And, and there's, there to, there's labor and <clears throat> squeezing oranges and lemons yeah. and limes. That, yeah, uh, there's, I mean, you know, you achieve scale in that too, just as you said, it's a different from, you know, you got the, you have the guy literally individually squeeze you know, half a lime per drink or you reach a point, you have a bar back and you're juicing for the evening, right? And so then it's just like one guy's knocking out a bunch of 750s of lime juice and lemon juice and you're done for the day, right? And so that's, you know, a lot more cost effective than cutting a lime in half and squeezing it into the individual cocktail shaker. Yeah, you know? economy then, of scale. Yeah. But then you also, I mean, just to throw two things at that, one is that, uh, you know, some places there's that benefit of having the, the half of the lime, you know, for the presentation at, you know, cause you're doing it in front of the customer. Right. Sure. And then, and then juxtapose that with a, uh, I don't know, more corporate, uh, kind of restaurant that's not doing a craft kind of thing where they're, they're buying this, the stuff already pre pre done. So you're getting a, a more, probably more inferior product. Roses, lime juice. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Adela, so the, the brick and mortar, what, what is your dream kind of setup? <laughs> in, in the brick, I know you've thought about this. Yeah. So, what, yeah. what do you, what do you dream of when you say I want a brick and mortar? I want a bakery, and I want to have. Um, I want to showcase. I have so many uh, friends that are musicians and photographers and painters, and I want to showcase all their work. I want to create half a bakery and half a community space. Everybody can come there. They can work. Just want to play hip hop all day, every day. <laughs> Old school, new school. Uh, preferably have a small stage. Um, people can throw events or do a little album release party. I want to have a music inspired bake shop. I just want to be in the kitchen part because so, I don't know how to do the other things. <laughs> so, so you you have items available. Talk about some of the other items besides the cheesecake and the um the big So right pie. now on the menu, um I've left the caramel apple cheesecake cuz it's been a huge hit. So I figured I can just keep that for another month till it's cold <laughs> and then spring comes. Um I have a salted caramel cheesecake, caramel apple cheesecake. Um, I have this new pie, the Big Pimpin' Pie, which is a banana cream pie with peanut butter and bacon. I have a regular banana cream pie, a uh, sweet potato. That's a huge hit, too. The sweet potato has been really... You know, anything you put a touch of whiskey in, it's... (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's. um, And um, what else I have in there? What about those cookies you make? Yeah, so, oh, I, I, forgot. <laughs> I forgot about the most important thing, the Wu-Tang cookies. 
Uh, so the Wu-Tang cookies, actually, never plan on making them. My sister gave me a Wu-Tang cutter for Christmas, last Christmas, and because I love them so much. And she's like, see what you can do with this. See, it's everybody that doesn't cook around me. They're like, see what you can do with this. <laughs> and I am the only one I have to figure it out. Um, but then I started making these, like, they're citrus shortbread cookies. Uh-huh. And they turned out so good. And then when I started putting them out, everybody was just like, oh, it's Wu-Tang, it's Wu-Tang. And uh, first thing they said, well, are these edible? I'm like, no, I was straight. I'm not even going to. Collectible. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, this is safe to eat. But it was such a huge hit. And then they were, they're literally, every time I have them, I'm like, these are so good. I'm never going to change the flavor. (laughs) And I'm a citrus person, so I love citrus. Awesome. Uh, desserts. Probably get a lot of orders. You know, they're coming to Detroit May 31st. Yeah, those, so I always make sure to have Wu-Tang cookies everywhere I go, except for today. My apologies. <laughs> <laughs> Has Wu-Tang had your Wu-Tang cookies? Uh, no, but I did end up getting into movement last year, and I never go because I'm not into electronic music. Yeah. But I only went because they were closing, and I reached out to everybody involved in getting them here, and I couldn't get through. I went through all the DMs, all the tags, nothing. But I did end up squeezing first row when they performed, so that was the highlight of my last year. Any any of our Freedom Hill listeners... Uh, Freedom Hill. Yeah, or They're Wu-Tang. Coming. If Wu-Tang's listening, I mean, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Fifth, third, fifth third Bank. <laughs> fifth Third Bank. So uh, where can people, back. so let's go one more time. Where can yep. people find you online? So you can find me on Instagram at Hip Hop Bake Shop. Uh-huh. Uh, you can place an order at hiphopbakeshop.com. Right. And the Instagram is actually the best place to see where I'll be next and doing other events. But the website is the primary spot. Do you have order. any pop-ups coming up? Uh, not as of yet. Okay. Hopefully in the spring. All right. Adele, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much. This was fun. All right. Until next time, dine well, friends.